Well, there is no one like Jesus. He is the most important person that any of us will ever meet. No one has the power to radically alter our lives the way Jesus can. And when a person truly encounters Christ, they're never the same. Their life is forever changed. And over the next six weeks, we are going to have the opportunity to learn about some of those uh, unforgettable encounters that Christ had with people during his life and ministry. These are men and women, very much like us, whose lives were radically changed forever by an unexpected meeting with the Son of God. And as we consider these salvation stories, my prayer is that it would refresh us, those of us that have been radically transformed, are being radically transformed by Christ. We know what it means to be saved. That our, we would just be so refreshed, we would be so encouraged as we think back about that first encounter that we had with Christ. We're also praying that this would be a great opportunity for those of you maybe who come to, to our church every Sunday, every week, and you've yet to truly commit your life to Christ, that uh, you would be moved, you'd be drawn to Christ in, in a true and real saving way. Um, it's also a great opportunity for you to bring some unsaved friends, unbelieving family members, neighbors, coworkers, classmates, people you work out with at the gym, because we're not only going to be preaching God's word and looking at Christ and the Gospels, which there's nothing more powerful, I think, for evangelistic purposes than to look at the Gospels and just to see Jesus. And so uh, we're going to be doing that, but we're also going to have an opportunity to hear some testimonies, uh, to have some people in our church get up and tell us how they came to know Christ, tell, tell us about their encounter with Christ. And so, again, it'll be a great uh, opportunity for you to bring some unbelievers uh, invite them to come on a Wednesday night. Maybe they are not available on Sunday or church on Sunday is kind of scary to them, but Wednesday night, come and eat some pizza and hanging out, and right? They might be more open to come, and so I want to encourage you to uh, take advantage of this opportunity and uh, use it as a tool uh, as you seek to, to win your uh, family members and your neighbors and coworkers to Christ. So... I'll never forget my encounter with Christ. Thought I'd start by sharing my testimony tonight. I had the privilege of being born in a Christian home and raised uh, where I was exposed to the teaching of God's word. And it seems like there was never a time in my life when I didn't know that God loved me so much that he had sent his son Jesus to die for me, to pay the, the punishment for my sin so that I could go to heaven when I die. And as a young boy, uh, I lost track of the, the, the number of times I asked God to forgive me for my sin and prayed the sinner's prayer and um, accepted Jesus into my heart as my Savior. And uh, I may be like some of you young people here, uh, that whenever I had an opportunity to um, pray to receive Christ, whenever an invitation was given, uh, I usually responded just to be safe, just be on the safe side, right? Got to make sure. And uh, you see, I was familiar enough with the Bible to know that I wasn't truly living the way a Christian is supposed to live. And I would act one way on Sunday, 
And then I'd act another way the rest of the week. And so at church, I was the kid who knew all the Bible verses, acted like the little angel. And then the rest of the week, I was the kid at school that knew all the dirty jokes and acted like the devil. And uh, in junior high, I was, um, I was a piece of work. Let's just say that. I, I prided myself on being the most filthy-minded, filthy-mouthed kid in my school. Um, I thought I was God's gift to the girls in my class. I was a, a cool jock with feathered hair. And I was wearing skinny jeans before they were a thing, okay? I mean, it was embarrassingly tight jeans I was wearing, you know, but I'm just saying, you know, don't even try to picture that. You don't want to have that picture in your mind. But I would. I'd wear my shirt unbuttoned, you know, so that you could see my puka bead necklace, you know, or my arrowhead necklace, depending on which one I decided to wear that day. Um, but uh, anyway, my double life was good until I went to summer camp. And uh, every summer, my parents would send me to a Christian camp for a week or two. And by the grace of God, I was exposed to some great speakers and also some godly counselors who saw right through my hypocrisy. And as a result of, of powerful sermons and, and late night talks with, with my counselors, typically by the end of the time at camp, I was totally under conviction. And I knew I wasn't living the way I was supposed to live and things needed to change. And several summers in a row, on the last night at camp, I would go forward at the, at the campfire. Anybody been to a camp where you have a campfire last night and you they have a pile of sticks, right? And you're supposed to go up there and grab a stick and get up and share your testimony and throw a stick in the fire. And that's supposed to resemble, you know, you're, you're, or, 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 you know, uh, you know, you're giving your life to Christ and, and, uh, you know, it's all for him. And so I would get up and I would, you know, make some kind of public pledge to truly follow Christ. And I'd throw that stick in the fire and walk away. And I'd get back home and I'd do better for a few weeks, but then I would fall back into that same double life that I was really had gotten really good at living. And so the summer I went to, uh, summer before I went into eighth grade, I went to camp. I had that same experience that I had the previous few years. I got convicted about the way I was living and the hypocrite that I was, and um, I cried, um, threw the stick in the fire, told everybody I was going to live differently this year. And went home. And I think that's when God said, you know what? That's the last time this guy's throwing a stick in the fire. Okay? I'm kind of getting, it's kind of getting old. I'm going to make sure this one, you know, this one actually sticks. Okay? This is the real deal. Um, and so a couple weeks later, I was out on a bike ride in my neighborhood with my next door neighbor, Matt. Now, Matt was kind of my best bud. Uh, we grew up playing together in the field between our houses and and we had lots of world wars fought there and wiffle ball world series and, you know, touch football, uh, Super Bowls and all sorts of other, you know, the, the, what we used to call the, this is the championship of the entire world. You ever do that when you were a kid? Right now, we're going to play right now. This is, a, this is the final inning. This is the championship of the entire world. That's the way Matt and I were. We were always competing with one another. Problem was he was three years older than me, bigger, stronger. So he was always beating me up. I was always trying to catch up to him, whatever he was doing. And so, as usual, that day when we went out on a ride on our bikes on that hot August morning, he was way ahead of me, and I was trying to catch up. And so I was pedaling as fast as I could on my, my, uh, my Motobicon 10-speed, my little red 10-speed, uh, and I was just flying down this hill in a tuck position, and I was, I was just oblivious where I was. I was just intent on catching up with Matt. 
And I looked up just in time to see a van coming around this blind corner. And I blacked out. I was so scared. <laughs> saw, I looked up, saw this van. You would have thought, I wish I could tell you, that was really cool. I skidded and went off into the woods, you know. I just, I blacked out. The guy who was driving the van met me afterwards and said it was the strangest thing. Your face just went blank and you just kept riding your bike right into me. And uh, so, yeah, so I slammed head on into this van and when the paramedics got there, they were shocked that I was still alive. And they peeled me off the, the pavement there and the next thing I remember was thrashing around in an ambulance on the way to the hospital, I didn't realize it was to the second hospital. I'd already been to one hospital. They took one look at me and said, we're not dealing with this. And they sent me to the, the big city hospital. And uh, apparently things looked a lot worse than they were because in the goodness of God, I, I didn't break any bones um, because my body was limp when I hit, right? It's the, it's the drunk guy that never gets hurt, right? Because they're just limp in the accident. Well, I was, you know, I was limp. So um, I smashed the headlight with my knee and got a cut across my face with the windshield wiper. And so really all I needed was some stitches and uh, only had to spend a few days in the hospital before I was released to go home and recuperate. And so as I was lying there one day, recovering my bedroom, I'll never forget my mom came in and she just looked at me and said, can you know God spared you for a reason? And that was, I think, her way of saying, listen, you and I both know. <laughs> I thought I had her fooled, right? I had my parents fooled, right, that I was living this double life and they didn't know about it. And she's like, it was her way of saying, you and I both know you've not been living the way you need to be living. And uh, God was merciful to you. Um, he's got some special purpose for your life. Well, at that moment when she said that, I was just overwhelmed by God's grace and mercy to me and humbled by God's call on my life. That's, that was true. That he must have something more for me to do. And I don't recall making a conscious decision to change after that, that um, bike accident. But all I know is that my life was never the same. I went back to school that fall and I still can see all my friends around me and I was still in a brace and had cuts all over my face still, still healing and they were like, oh dude, we heard about your accident. Wow, tell us about it. And typically I would have loved that, like being the center of attention. That's what I live for, to be the center of attention. And, uh, and, and you know, my, my mind and heart were completely different. All I cared about was giving glory to God and, and telling them about Jesus and the Lord just gave me this, this, this overwhelming desire to, to tell my friends about Christ. And uh, they were all living worldly lives and, and just living for the, for the weekends and the, the major ragers, as they used to call them in high school, right? And so it was midway through high school that God just gave me this um, incredible burden just to, to give my life completely to full-time uh, Christian service. I didn't even know what that looked like. I never even knew there was such a thing as a youth pastor. I never heard of one, never had one. I was just, I'm going to be a Bible teacher. You know, that's all. I'm going to teach young people the Bible. That's all I knew what to say. And so I thought, well, I better go to Bible college. And so the rest is history. And uh, again, my life has never uh, been the same since that. that. That bike accident was the turning point in my life. And 
as I look back at that moment, I think, you know, I'm not sure I was truly saved. But I am sure that I didn't fully understand the level of commitment that Christ requires of those who call themselves Christians. Up until that point, I had just followed Christ because it was all, of, all I ever knew. Maybe just following mom and dad. I served the Lord sporadically when it was convenient for me. But God used that bike accident to get my attention. And after that, my life changed forever. I was a different person. Well, tonight we're going to look at a man who had a similar experience with Christ. My encounter with Christ happened on a bike. His encounter with Christ happened in a boat. And his name is Peter, the most well-known disciple of Christ. thought this would be a good one to start off with. And so uh, take your Bibles, hopefully you got your Bible with you, and turn to Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 5. And we're going to look at Peter's encounter with Christ. And uh, you can just follow along as I read the text. This is uh, Luke chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him, Jesus, and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is the turning point in Peter's life. Now, this wasn't the first time that Peter met Jesus. In the previous chapter, right there at the end of chapter 4, you might just look up and see that Jesus um, had been to Peter's house and healed his uh, mother-in-law, chapter 4, verses 38 and 39. Uh, Peter had been traveling with Jesus sporadically, but had yet to fully commit his entire life to to following and serving Christ. And if you were to compare the the four Gospels, you discover that there's at least four different phases in Jesus' calling the 12 disciples. And each of the Gospel writers emphasized the phase or phases that best suited their purpose for writing their Gospel. And Luke is the only one who included this particular phase, if you will, of the the call of the disciples. This is not the initial call of the disciples. This is actually the third time that Christ called the disciples to follow him. Now, we don't have time to to look at all these in depth, but you can uh, maybe write these down. The first call 
The call to salvation is found in John chapter 1, verses 35 to 42. When John the Baptist saw Jesus and he said to his disciples, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and encouraged his disciples to, to go meet Christ. He introduced them to Christ. Well, if you remember, there was a guy named Andrew there who was whose brother? Peter's brother. And he immediately went to Peter and said, Peter, we just found the one who claims to be the Son of God. And Andrew introduced Peter to Christ. There's a second call in Matthew chapter 4, also Mark chapter 1. In fact, we might read that one because it's very similar to the one we're looking at in Matthew or in Luke chapter 5. But in Mark chapter 1, verse 16, listen to what happens here. As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brothers of Simon, the brother of Simon, casting a net. Uh, uh, casting it in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you, or I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. So this was a call to to, to witness or to serve to serve Christ and to to, to spread the gospel. Well, the third call would be the one that we're looking at tonight in Luke chapter 5. Um, and then there's the fourth call, uh, which is in Luke chapter 6 and Mark chapter 3, when Jesus actually called them officially to be his apostles, to be his disciples. He stayed up all night, prayed, and then he uh, invited them to come be his uh, disciples. And, and the, the apostles uh, were uh, initiated, if you will. But back to Luke chapter 5. Interesting that it's very similar to the one I read to you in Mark chapter 1, but there's differences here, significant enough, I think, to make these uh, the second and third call, if you will, uh, not the same event. Um, in Mark chapter 1, they were alone. Uh, here in Luke chapter 5, there, there's a crowd. Um, back in uh, Mark chapter 1, they were fishing. Here, they're washing their nets. Um, it says that they were, uh, in Mark chapter 1, they were on their boats. Here it says they're at, that they're at the shore. And, uh, and by the way, Mark chapter 1, there's no fish. No, no, nothing about a catch of fish. We're here, there's lots of fish. So it seems like that there's, you know, after the first two calls, the disciples only followed Christ temporarily, is what I'm gathering from this timeline. They would travel with him on short journeys, but would return uh, to their occupation of fishing. But after this third call, they followed Christ permanently and completely. And we, I get that, draw that from verse 11. Notice Luke chapter 5, verse 11. When they had brought their boats to land, they left what? Everything and followed him. So I'm saying all that, that this is really not a call to salvation, but it's a call to service. But I think you're going to see as we go through this, um, this is a good illustration of salvation, and it, it's really the, the incident that Jesus used to get Peter's attention in his life, um, uh, or get Peter's attention, and his life was never the same. Because from this point on, everything changed. He no longer followed Christ half-heartedly, but committed himself to wholeheartedly follow and serve the Lord. Why? Because the first, for the first time, I think, 
he saw Jesus for who he really was. That's what was different about this time. He saw Jesus for who Jesus really was. And when he saw Jesus for who he really was, he, for the first time, saw himself for who he really was. And that radically altered his life forever. So let's look at this narrative. I've broken it up into two parts tonight. Um, we're first of all going to see Jesus' remarkable revelation. In other words, he reveals himself to Peter. And then we're going to secondly see Peter's remarkable reaction to this revelation. So let's look first of all at Jesus' remarkable revelation. Verse 1, now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Um, again, Jesus was gaining fame and popularity, so large crowds were beginning to gather wherever he went. Uh, he had no uh, relief, if you will. He had to go sneak away. If he was going to get some time alone, he'd have to actually literally sneak away early in the morning to get away from these crowds. And so they were gathering to hear the word of God preached. And it says that he was here by the lake of Gennesaret, which is another term or title for the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee has a number of names. It's referred to in the Old Testament as Chinnereth. Uh, John uh, describes it as the sea or, or calls it the Sea of Tiberias. Luke calls it the Lake of Gennesaret, but it's the Sea of Galilee. And, and it's probably more accurate to call it a lake. You know, when you think of the Sea of Galilee, you get this picture of, the, of, of like the ocean, which it's not even close to an ocean. In fact, the, the measurements of the Sea of Galilee are it's 13 miles long and 8 miles wide. I mean, you get up on the, on, the, on the shore and you can, if you've been to Israel, you know this to be true. You can kind of see the whole thing. I mean, Lake Conroe is bigger than the Sea of Galilee. Lake Conroe is something like 20, I wrote down here, 26 miles by 6 miles. So the Sea of Galilee is, just to give you some perspective, is smaller uh, than, than Lake Conroe. So this, this event happened somewhere along the shore of this lake near Capernaum, which was uh, Peter's hometown. Verse 2, and he saw two boats, Jesus saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land, and he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. So this was um, something that Jesus did on, on a number of occasions, that he would commandeer a boat and use it as a floating pulpit. Because the crowds were, were pressing in against him, and so it allowed him to be, to be better seen and better heard. Um, the, there was natural acoustics there on the water. You know how things echo across the lake, right? Um, and so uh, he was out there preaching. And then look at verse 4. And when he had finished speaking, sermon's over, he says to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. He's like, hey, Pete, let's go fishing. And at first, Peter didn't want to go. Look at verse 5. Simon said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. So Peter didn't want anything to do with this little fishing trip. Why? Well, he'd already washed the nets. He'd hung them up to dry for the day. He was exhausted after a sleepless night of fishing. That's when they would do their fishing, right at night, because by mid-morning... Right, every fisherman knows that's not the best time to fish. Right, the best time is the in the late evening or early morning, 
right, where the fish come to the surface, this is the worst time to fish, right? When the sun's shining off the water, the fish go to the bottom to get, uh, I'm not even a fisherman, I don't even know if I'm telling you the truth here or not. I hate fishing, okay, I'm just saying, okay, that's why I'd say, Jesus, I'm not in, I don't, I don't like to fish, it's like boring, okay? But I'm sorry, I'm fending the fishermen out here, right? But you're, you, those of you that are fishermen, you can relate to this, right? You understand exactly what's up with Peter here saying, what, this is a waste of time, man. The fish aren't biting. I've been out there all night. You want me to go back out there? I've got to get the boat off the thing. I've got to go up my hooks and lures and all this kind of stuff. I've got to do all this again. That's a lot of work. And Peter was a professional fisherman. This is what he did for a living, okay? He probably grew up fishing on the Sea of Galilee. He probably knew it like the back of his hand, had years of fishing experience. And Jesus was a carpenter. What does a carpenter know about fishing? Well, Peter was about to find out that this carpenter knew, knew a whole lot more about fishing than he did. And notice how he responded. I love this term that he used for Jesus. He said, master. Master. We worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. So he acknowledged Christ's authority over him that he had the right to give the orders. You're the boss. Aye, aye, captain. If that's what you say, that's what goes. And so even though Peter didn't understand and didn't agree, even though he thought he knew better, even though he didn't feel like doing it, what did he do? He obeyed. Anyway. And I think that should be our response whenever Christ asks us to do something even when it's hard to understand why he's asking us to do it, we don't feel like it. We just need to say, okay, you're the boss. Aye, captain. I'll do it your way, not my way. Verse six, when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. So God rewarded Peter's obedience with this unbelievable catch of fish. I mean, we're talking so much fish that the nets are breaking and the boats are sinking. Anybody been out in Lake Conroe lately and you caught so many fish that your boat started to sink? Yeah, I didn't think so. Okay. I mean, this is a lot of fish. And this, this, this was more than just a lot of fish. This was a remarkable revelation of who Jesus really was. This, this is not normal. This is, this is supernatural. And Peter got it. And so that was Jesus' remarkable revelation. Let's look at Peter's remarkable reaction. Again, picture this, right? Verses six and seven, they had done this. They enclosed a great quantity of fish. Their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. I don't know, have you, anybody been on a sinking boat? That's not like, hey, check it out, man. It's, we're sinking. This is kind of fun. Woohoo! You're like, the boat's sinking! And you freak out, right? And you start like going into fix-it mode and trying to figure out and, you know, what's that stuff you're supposed to spray and stuff? 
fixes your boat? Flex seal. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Flex seal. Yeah. Where's, where's my flex seal when I need it, right? Um, but, I mean, this was, this was unbelievable. This was amazing. They, they were shocked by what they were witnessing, but at the same time, this was dangerous. And I, I imagine that they were panicking and, and frantically bailing water and throwing fish back. And I mean, they were trying to salvage the situation. And so in the midst of all this commotion and chaos, notice what Peter does. He's not thinking about the boat sinking. He's not thinking, wow, you know, what what is he thinking? When Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. So in the midst of all that commotion, Peter just falls flat on his face in a pile of fish and begged Jesus to go away. Why? Well, verse 9 tells us why. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. Peter understood that what he was witnessing was, was humanly impossible. This was not something human. Again, this was supernatural. But I think the, the real reason for this remarkable response is wrapped up in one word. Look at verse 8 again. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, go away from me. How does he address Jesus? Lord. Kyrios, which was the Greek word used in the, in the LXX, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This was the word that was used to translate the word for God in the Old Testament. So essentially what Peter is saying here is, go away from me, God, for I am a sinful man. Peter got it, that, that he was in the presence of the Almighty God. Only God, only the God of the universe who, who created everything and controls everything could have done what just happened. And Peter was awestruck by Jesus' power and authority over nature. And, and what's more, he was overwhelmed by a sense of awe of Jesus' majesty and, and glory and realized that he fell short of his glory. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so at that moment, Peter realized he was in the presence of God and he was instantly convicted of his sinfulness. Go away from me, Lord, for I am a, what? A sinful man. He felt totally unworthy and was terrified, and so he fell on his face before Christ. Which, by the way, if you know your Bible a little bit, you know this was, this was just one of a number of instances in the Scriptures where sinful men came face to face with God, and their response was exactly the same as this. Remember Samson's parents, Manoah and his wife, when the angel of the Lord came to them and they, they figured it out that 
that, wow, that was the angel of the Lord. That wasn't just an angel. That was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said, well, we shall surely die for we've seen the Lord. Or Job. In Job chapter 42, he said, I have heard of you with my ears, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. So Job was convicted of his sinfulness when God put on display his glory in front of him. Where were you when I did this? And where were you when I did this? Then, of course, Isaiah. We're familiar with Isaiah chapter 6 when the prophet was caught up into the heavens and saw a vision of God. And he said, woe is me for I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then the apostle John in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter one, John confessed, he said, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. Talk about blacking out, right? <laughs> Boom. On the ground. And I think what we learn from these examples throughout the scriptures, it's only when we see God for who he really is that we can see ourselves for who we really are. And it causes us to, to writhe, if you will, inwardly over our sinfulness, which is the prelude to experiencing God's grace and forgiveness. In other words, you can't be saved if you don't know you're a sinner. Who needs to be saved? So it starts with acknowledging your sinfulness. And it's our sin that should drive us to Christ for salvation. Notice how Jesus responded so graciously. Verse 10, and so also were James and John amazed by this catch of fish, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. So Jesus comforted him, calmed his fears, and called him and, and his partners in the fishing business to follow him. Here's Peter. I'm, I'm an unworthy sinner. I'm unworthy to be your disciple. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, a wretched fisherman. And Jesus is like, yeah, you are. <laughs> but I'm gonna make you a successful follower of me. Isn't that encouraging? We, we all could make that confession that, that I'm unworthy to be your disciple Christ. I'm a wretched sinner. And he's like, yeah, you are. <laughs> I agree with you. But I can, by my grace, I can make you a faithful follower of me. And I love that he says, do not fear from now on you will be catching men. And the idea there is catching men alive. Instead of catching fish to, to kill them, you're going to be catching men to save them and give them new life. One of the cross references I saw as I was studying that piqued my interest was 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26. might seem like an odd cross-reference at first to this catching men, but in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26, where Paul was uh, encouraging Peter not to be quarrelsome uh, as the Lord's bondservant, but be kind, able to teach, patient when wronged, 
with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And this is the verse, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. In other words, we're catching people who have been caught in Satan's net. We're going in there and we're pulling them out of that net. And so Jesus says, hey, Peter, from now on, your life will be consumed with bringing people to me. Rather than what you do in your, your, most of your life, which is fishing. You're no longer a fisherman, you're a soul winner. And I think that great catch of fish, again, this is speculation here, I admit, but I think that great catch of fish was representative of the great catch of souls that God allowed Peter to make at Pentecost. When he preached that first sermon, how many people got saved, remember? 3,000 people repented of their sin, of killing their Messiah, Jesus, on the cross. And they committed their lives to follow him as their Lord and Savior. That was the kind of catch that Jesus had in mind and in store for Peter as this fisher of men. But again, back to where we sort of started here, verse 11, when they brought their boats to shore or to land, they left everything and followed him. Left everything, boats, nets, tackle, you name it, career, homes, families, friends, not to mention the catch of a lifetime. They just kind of left that, that, that great catch. I'd be like, I mean, that's like, you know, catching the, Got bigger, right? It gets bigger as you tell the story over there. Oh, I caught this thing and it was really, right? I mean, this was the catch of a lifetime. This was, man, they, this was, I mean, they could one-up anybody at a party on this one, right? Well, you caught, well, I caught, right? Didn't matter. Nothing is said about that catch of fish. It's like they just walked away from it. Didn't matter anymore. And this was, this was truly a remarkable response not just his falling on his face in the fish pile, but walking away from everything for Christ. I mean, what kind of person? Who, who has that kind of authority, that kind of power of influence to get you to give up your career, your source of income, your family, your friends by simply saying, follow me? I mean, you think about that. You're at work tomorrow, sitting at your desk doing your thing, and somebody walks in and says, Follow me. You're like, whatever, dude. I'm sitting right here. But who are you? I'm not going to get up. and. What do you mean follow me? Yeah, I mean everything. That's it. You're out of here. Done. We wouldn't do that. And on some level, it's not just who Jesus was, but this took incredible faith on the part of the disciples. And again, I think that this catch of fish had lots of... Um, there was lots of reasons for it. Um, but I think that incredible catch gave them the faith to give up everything, knowing that, you know what? I think we'll be okay as long as we're with Jesus. <laughs> if he can do that, right, what do we got to worry about? He can provide every, every other need we'll ever have. So, hey, we can give up our livelihood. And again, I think Jesus just wanted them to have the confidence that even though they gave up everything, 
they would lack nothing. Turn ahead just a few chapters to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, you remember the story of the rich young ruler and Jesus told him to, he came running up to Jesus all excited. Hey, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do to go to, go to heaven? And Jesus says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. And he, it says he turned around and walked away sad because he was really rich and he wasn't willing to do that. Well, Peter's check, watching this whole thing go down. And in Luke chapter 18, verse 28, Peter said, behold, we've left our own homes and followed you. We, we've done what you told this guy to do. And look at what Jesus says, verse 29. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and the age to come eternal life. You know, I don't know where you're at in your walk with the Lord or your career or your heart for ministry, but... I have to believe that at any, any given time, at any given church, that there are people that God is working on and pushing them to go further in their commitment to him and, and possibly go into full-time ministry. Like God's nudging them and God's calling them and he's, he's leading them to give it all up, whether it's here in the States or to go overseas on a to become a missionary somewhere, to serve on, on some mission. And if that's you, that you feel God perhaps calling you or leading you into full-time ministry, you don't have anything to fear. That's, that's typically what keeps us from doing that, right? Going all in. Is we're afraid. How's that, what's it going to look like? What's that going to be like? How can I provide for my family? How can I do this or that? And the point is this, you can be sure that where God guides, he always provides, amen? No matter what you give up, God will give back to you far more than you can imagine. He'll take care of you, don't worry. Now again, this was not Peter's salvation experience, I don't believe. May have been, I, I'm not sure, I, I can't know for sure, but... I think this is when Christ called him to serve him full time. And yet even so, I think it's a perfect illustration of salvation. Because throughout the rest of Luke's gospel, he emphasized the fact that forsaking everything and following Christ is the condition that Christ lays out for being a Christian. I mean, that, that verse is so clear. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Look at Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Again, Jesus with his disciples, talking to a crowd of people. So he, spoke, he was speaking both to believers and unbelievers at that moment. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, and Jesus was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And then turn over to chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 26. I love this story. This is when uh, large crowds were going along with him. I mean, Jesus had, had, uh, had become so popular, massive crowds just everywhere he went following him. 
And he turned on his heels and he said, hey, time out. Let me make this real clear, okay? Just because just you're in the crowd doesn't mean you're a Christian. Just because you're here at church doesn't mean you're a Christian. He says, if anyone comes to me, this is Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life cannot be my, what? Disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then verse 33. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. What's another word for disciple? Follower of Jesus. A Christian. This wasn't like, okay, now you guys that are like playing JV, kind of minor league Christians, let me tell you how to get into the majors. Let me tell you how to play varsity. No, this is, this is like what it means to be a Christian, period. There's no JV Christians and varsity Christians, minor league Christians, major league Christians, right? This is what it means to be a Christian. And so Peter modeled here back in, back in Luke chapter 5, I think Peter modeled the, the only proper response to Christ when a person sees him for who he really is and they see themselves for who they really are. What did he do? He did three things. First of all, he fell. He fell. He acknowledged his sinfulness. Secondly, he forsook he, he, he gave up his sin. He gave up his plans, his desires for his life. And then he followed. He followed. He committed his life to obey Christ, to become like Christ. What does it mean to be a Christian? You fall before Christ as the wretched sinner that you are. You forsake your sin and all your plans and your dreams of what you wanted your life to be. And then you follow Christ and say, I'm yours. And I'm going to go where you want me to go. I'm going to do what you want me to do. And I'm going to be as much like you as humanly possible. That's what it means to be a Christian. So the question is, are you a true Christian? Have you acknowledged your sinfulness to God? Have you claimed forgiveness for your sin through faith alone in Christ's death on the cross in your place? Have you committed your life to follow and obey Jesus as your Lord and Master? If you haven't done that, you can do that tonight. And this could be the turning point in your life. Tonight could be the turning point in your life. If you know the story of Peter... You know, this wasn't the last time that Jesus used a great catch of fish to impact this guy's life, this, the life of this sinful fisherman. You know, Peter became Christ's most outspoken disciple. And tragically, however, when Jesus was arrested and crucified, he denied that he even knew Christ. And not just once, he did it three times. Like, I don't know that guy. I, I wasn't one of his followers. And with deep sorrow and, and regret, he returned to Galilee, returned probably to his hometown of Capernaum and went out on that same shore line where he first met Christ, if you will, had that experience with him, fallen 
flat on his face in a pile of fish. And he was under such regret, such sorrow, such brokenness, so much guilt. He took up what he left to follow Christ. And he and his old buddies went fishing. John 21 says they fished all night and caught nothing. That sound familiar? Yeah, that's exactly what was going on in, in uh, Luke chapter 5. And here Peter is again, fishing all night, catching nothing. And then some guy, early in the morning, shows up on the shore and yells out, you got any fish? It's like the last thing a fisherman wants to hear when he hasn't caught anything all night, right? No. And the guy cries back, well, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat and you'll find a catch. What? Come on, we're fishing here. It's like right side boat, left side of the boat. Does it really that matter? Does it really matter what side of the boat? And so they cast and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. And so when Simon heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came into the little boat for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So here they go again, this massive catch, supernatural catch of fish. And this was like deja vu. It was like John's like, oh, been there, done that. Peter, hello, who do you think that is? It's Jesus. And the moment it dawns on Peter who that is, he instantly leaps into the water and starts swimming. He can't, he can't wait to get to shore. And again, this is after denying Christ three times when he was more aware of his sinfulness than ever. He, he thought he was a sinful man back in Luke chapter five, but he really knew how sinful he was now. He knew the, the wretchedness of his own heart that he could actually deny his Lord and master. Not just once, not just twice, but three times. And yet what a different response. His first instinct was to, to dash to Christ. When years earlier, he was so overwhelmed by his sin. Peter wanted to get away from Christ, but now he couldn't get to Christ fast enough. What changed? Peter had changed. He had grown and matured in his relationship with Christ. And so even though he knew how much more of a sinner he really was, he also knew how much more of a savior Jesus was. And that motivated him to run to Christ, to swim to Christ for mercy and grace and forgiveness. And that's how it should be for us as Christians. That the longer we walk with Christ, the more we realize what great sinners we really are. Isn't that true? It's like, hey, I should be getting better. Why do I feel like I'm getting worse? Man, I'm more of a wretch now than I was 20 years ago. What's up with that? Well, we're starting to see 
how sinful we really are. We're starting to understand the depth of our depravity as we grow in Christ. Seems counterproductive, doesn't it? Counterintuitive. But at the same time, as we're realizing more and more what a great sinner we really are, we're also realizing how great a Savior Jesus really is. And so instead of running away from him when we sin, we run to him when we sin. Because we know he's so ready to forgive. A number of years ago, I don't really remember now anymore, it was a while ago, our family had the privilege of going back to New England where I was from and got to take my wife and kids back to my hometown. And so I took them by the house I grew up in. It's kind of cool. Went up and knocked on the door and introduced myself and they're like, come on in. And we got to walk around and the kids got to see my bedroom and it was kind of really wild and you're weird letting us in your house. You don't even know us, but um, it was a pretty cool experience. I took him to the grade school that I went to, walked in, and Mr. Thompson, the wrestling coach, didn't even recognize the guy. He was so old. <laughs> He's like, Kenny, Kenny Ramey, how you doing? I'm like, whoa, who are you? <laughs> and the kids started laughing. Our kids were like, ah, daddy, they called you Kenny. Um, but it was surreal. I mean, we're showing the kids around the school and the library and told them, you know, where I did this and did that and how I got in trouble over here. And this is the principal's office where I sat most of my time and went to the little country store that we used to shop at and buy the smelly cheese, the aged cheddar cheese, and where I used to put uh, Susie Q's. You know what Susie Q's are? Hostess Susie Q's. I used to love those things. And so I would get off the school bus at the country store and I'd go in and I'd grab them, you know, and uh, my parents had a, had a, had a what do they call it, a tab? Like that's, I'm dating myself, okay? You walked in the country store, yeah, I just put on my parents' tab. They kept track of this thing and at the end of the month they'd go in there and pay it with cash. So I, I took advantage of that and I was like, yeah, just, my mom and dad said I just put it on their credit. Well, they hadn't told me that. I was being sneaky and sinful and, but they were Susie Q's, so. so I was showing the kids around what I used to do there. I took them to the backyard, drove by the backyard where I first prayed to receive Christ at the backyard Bible club, wordless book, right? Punching cookies afterwards, so I kept peeking while I was praying to receive Christ just to make sure I was still, there were still cookies left. <laughs> I was a pudgy little kid, and so I was... Jesus or cookies, right? I mean, it was like, not sure what was more important at that time. Hey, it's a process, right? It's a process. Um, but as we were driving out of town, I pulled down this road, and they're like, where are we going now? And uh, I just pulled up to that corner, that blind corner. They didn't know where I was taking them. And I just parked the rental car, and I just sat there. And they're like, there was nothing to see. Like, what, what are we doing here? And I said, guys, I took you here. I brought you here because I wanted you to see where your dad and your husband almost died when he was 12. And tell you how merciful that God was to spare my life so I could be your husband, I could be your dad, and I could serve him as a pastor. 
let's pray. <laughs> and so I just had everybody bow our heads and we just, we just prayed. And I just thank the Lord for being gracious and merciful and sparing me and blessing me in spite of my sinful ways. And as I've grown and matured in my relationship with Christ since then, while I realize more and more every day what a great sinner I am, I also realize what a great Savior I have. And his name is Jesus. And if he's not your Savior, he can be. And if you want to talk about what that looks like, how that happens, nothing I'd rather do for the next hour than talk to you about what it means to be a Christian. So I'll be around if you want to come and talk about it. You can obviously talk about it with any of our pastors, elders who are here. I'm not the only one you need to talk to. You can talk to your parents, talk to your brother, your sister, uh, who you know has already committed their lives to Christ. But talk to somebody. Don't just go, oh, well, let's go play soccer. No, talk to somebody. Don't let the sun go down tonight. Don't, don't put your head on the pillow tonight. Don't turn off that light tonight until you make sure you're right with Jesus. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your grace and mercy in my life that I would not be standing up here today if it were up to me. This is your doing. And so thank you for sparing me so that I could do this tonight. And I'm humbled by that. I'm honored by that. I'm unworthy uh, and unable in and of myself to be who you called me to be, but I'm thankful that in Christ I have everything that I need. And so do these sweet folks who are here tonight who know Christ as their Lord and Savior, that, Lord, tonight would just be a, a wonderful reminder, refreshing reminder that they have everything they need in their relation of Christ, that we wouldn't look for any, anything else that we already have in Christ anywhere else. So silly, so stupid that we go looking for things that we already have in Christ. We, we go look for them somewhere else. And so, Lord, may Peter's encounter with Christ tonight that we've looked at um, encourage us, just make us so grateful for our salvation. And Lord, and I pray you'd use his testimony to maybe bring someone else to Christ tonight. Maybe a child who's here, uh, a young person, a teenager, uh, maybe a mom or dad, maybe a guest who got invited tonight. Lord, would you accomplish your work for your glory? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.